Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. It's Liz Kelly. This week, we launched a new show on the network called the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. Coming from the guys who brought you the Fantasy Football Podcast, Danny Heifetz, Danny Kelly, and Craig Korolbeck will guide you through the fantasy football season, providing analysis on big picture conversations like weekly matchups, trades, and daily fantasy. The show will run every Monday and Wednesday throughout the rest of the summer, and we'll be helping you through the regular season as well. So follow and listen to the first episode of the Ringer Fantasy Football Podcast out now for free on Spotify. Welcome to Jam Session. I'm Juliette Littman. I'm Amanda Dobbins. We've got some core topics to discuss this week. We've got some royals. Uh, we got some uh, a new celebrity couple, well, new only to um, the pages of GQ that we're going to discuss, and things we're consuming, and some red table talk follow up. But let's start with perhaps the most beautiful bridal florals I've seen in quite some time. Princess Beatrice got married. She did. So it was a surprise wedding. In the sense, well, in the sense that, number one, it was not televised in front of billions of people. Uh, Juliet did not wake up at four in the morning or watch it on (laughs) playback on A&E or whatever the hell happened. It was TLC. Okay. All right. There you go. Um, It was a secret. It was a private ceremony for Beatrice and her now husband, Eduardo Mapello Mazzi. They were supposed to be married, I believe, this May. May. And then obviously COVID-19 hit and the wedding was postponed. And, you know, England still has restrictions about gatherings and weddings. So it was a very small private ceremony, um, though the Queen and Prince Philip were there. Prince Philip is, I believe, 99 years old. I thought he looks great for 99. (laughs) I was just like, I was just like, damn, good posture, looking sprite. He looked better than the last time I saw him. I was like, maybe retiring has been good for him. Yeah. Well, I think the 499 is a crucial asterisk, but but yes. Yes. Um and the reason and and so there there was a small private ceremony and then a few photos were released. And the first photo that you alluded to is like stunning. She is leaving the chapel, um which is the Royal Chapel of All Saints at Royal Lodge Windsor. I said that like that meant things to me. <laughs> Actually it does. Windsor is where the the queen has a residence and then uh, many other royals have a residence, including uh, Prince Andrew and Fergie, which we'll come back to that. And uh, that is where Harry and Meghan uh, had a residence on the estate until they didn't. That is the infamous um, multimillion dollar refurbishment. Yes. So it's also where um, Eugenie got married. Sorry, it's where. Uh, yeah, it's where Eugenie got married as well. All the recent weddings have been there. Right. And, and where Harry and Meghan got married, though, I believe this is like a different chapel, chapel because yeah. it's just they're lousy with chapels at the Windsor Estate. Anyway, so they're leaving this chapel. And as Juliet alluded, there is kind of there's like a floral arch uh, that they are walking under that is absolutely extraordinary. Like, I don't it's you know, it does look like the pages of a fairy tale or architectural digest, which like if if you're looking to the Royals for anything at this point, if they have any reason to exist, it's to like have a floral arch like this to walk under. It really is truly beautifully produced. It's honestly, it captures like what is best about white and pale pink flowers. And is it looks like both bridal and natural. I, I'm blown away by these flowers. I absolutely love them. Like if I could like just channel this energy from this photo into my home. I would. I love it. Yeah. You also just got to, the English, 
they they're good at their gardens. They're good at their flowers. So they they put a lot of energy into this. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And I think the other thing to note in this first photograph um, is what Beatrice is wearing. There are two things of note, um, you know, that come out in the press release with these photographs, which were officially released. But she is wearing the tiara, which like. I understand that it's technically a tiara, but this just looks like a damn crown to me. This is a huge piece of headwear, but it is the same tiara that uh, Queen Elizabeth wore on her wedding day. And I do not believe that it's a tiara that any of the other, you know, royal bride scents have worn on their wedding day. And she is also wearing a, a, a dress of Queen Elizabeth's that what that there were sleeves added, but she is wearing uh, things directly on loan from her grandmother, who is the queen, which is notable for a couple of reasons. One, that's not typically how they do things. And, and as such should be interpreted as a sign of support, which, you know, and you understand like as a grandmother, if you're not allowed to have a wedding with a huge wedding with a lot of people. So she's just trying to make Beatrice feel special, which is very nice. And you do have to imagine you know, I, my sympathies with anyone who is supposed to be getting married or having a life event right now, and it is uh, not what you imagined that it would be, whether you are uh, the granddaughter of the Queen of England or someone who is listening to this podcast. Um, maybe the granddaughter of, Queen of, of the Queen of England is listening to this podcast. I would be re really weirded out. But anyway, you know, so so that's a nice grandmotherly show of support. The other thing that you immediately got to read between the lines here, though, is that it's also a show of support because of who Beatrice's father is yeah. right now. And we should talk about this. The other photographs, there is a photograph with Beatrice and her new husband and then a, a socially distanced Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. They are they're definitely standing apart, but it's clear that uh, the Queen and Prince Philip were there and there were no photos involving uh, Beatrice and her father. Prince Andrew. Right. I also just want to note the tiara last person to wear it was Princess Anne at her one at her first wedding in nineteen. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. And so and I guess Beatrice and um, the Queen have always been particularly close. And, you know, it also has been rumored that Andrew was her favorite child. So she's close with the House of York. And so she, as you said, like she did something special for them, but there's actually no other family photos. Like we don't really know who else was there. I presume Sarah, the Duchess of York and Andrew, the Duke of York and her sister, and probably some of her cousins were there. She's got a lot of them. It was only 20 people. So including for his parents and like maybe a few of his confidants, there's not room for most of the family in this group of 20. But yeah, I mean, the, the absence of Andrew in these photos and the like official family photo being released being the Philip, Elizabeth, Edo, and Beatrice is, is pretty meaningful. And I, I think that we all wondered, like, would Prince, is Prince Andrew be gone for, for good? Like, is this a permanent, re like, retiring from public life? Or will they backtrack on it? But no, they have not, nor should they, nor do I personally ever want to hear from Andrew again. Um, but it's a pretty significant statement. Yeah. I think they really had no other option. Agreed. Top to bottom on any of this. I, you know, I think just given COVID-19 and the, the state of various countries and regulations they like, they can't be having a big wedding. So you have to do, if you're going to do it, you have to be doing something in secret. You can't like be doing a, a major celebration or breaking rules because in the UK, they still care about that. Their, their scandal a few months ago was about a, one of the ministers 
breaking quarantine. And it just honestly felt almost quaint in comparison to some of the scandals that we're having here in the U.S. And there ends the political soliloquy. But they had no other options about having the secret wedding. And then I think in terms of Prince Andrew to to foreground him in any way, especially right now, as you know, Ghislaine Maxwell um, has been arrested and that invest that trial is ongoing or, you know, that process is ongoing is it would just be such a colossal blunder. Like, I, I'm honestly a little surprised that they were even as public about this wedding Me too. as they as they were. And, you know, Beatrice is is the daughter but I, I, she, she deserves to to have a wedding and to get married, and you know there, there's a family aspect of this, so you can't hold everyone responsible for everything, you know. And again, we should just say beyond like the disastrous interview that Prince Andrew gave a few months ago, we don't know all the circumstances of of his past behavior. It's just a, a just it's just bad optics. Yeah. I- I actually found this whole thing to be just an extreme act of hubris. Like I, I think still even releasing the photos and I mean, I absolutely love these flowers. They are to die for, but it's also like super wasteful. Like it's still like just in this, this time of like upheaval around the world and, and illness around the world. I was just like, this is daring and bold. And just like, they like really believe in their institution and literally like, and themselves. And obviously, I mean, it's clear the queen, and Beatrice have like a really special bond. They probably wanted to share that and like have this wedding. And I don't, I don't blame this, this young woman for wanting to have the wedding and get married or whatever. But I, I still felt that this was like a pretty like bold Royal move. Yeah. It's at some point, it just highlights the, the irrelevance of, or not even the relevance, but just the, um, the juxtaposition between what they are, what they represent, how they go about their life and the real world. And the disconnect has never been greater. Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, it actually has, but I think we're, I, I think it's possibly always been that great, but we are attuned to it and paying attention to it. And it just kind of, there's no way to get around the fact that, you know, so many people are sick. So many people are losing their jobs. There's such uncertainty and then you get these lovely, like almost fairy tale pictures of someone leaving like a cast, a chapel and a castle that was built like hundreds of years ago yeah. with a, a like a perfect floral. And, you know, to some extent, that is the role that the royals have always served as yeah, a distraction. Sure. And and here we are talking about it. And, you know, you texted me the photos. We went back and forth. We both learned about the provenance of the dress and, you know, Love there the is history about the, the tiara. And, and I think to the extent that people need distraction or people have these sorts of interests and it's a, it's a way to channel them. They are, they are serving the same role in the public that they always have. It's just, we have so much more information and context that makes them just look outdated and out of touch. It reminded me of many of my favorite TV shows, which like will have some some season, you know, that many of my favorite TV shows are like from the WB. So from the vestige of the 22 episode season where all storylines um, culminate at one or two things, a death or a wedding. And, mm-hmm. that, and that's just sort of that's or a pregnancy, you know. And right. so those are the three options. 
On my, let's be real. On the shows that I really like, death is not usually one of the culminating moments. It's a it's a pregnancy reveal or a wedding, and it it just reminded me of sort of like it's in the playbook of like how to get people's attention and like how to have a narrative, how to distract from other things. Cause like, you know, Megan Markle's ongoing um, court case also named Beatrice and Eugenie as examples of why she should still be able to use the Royal title because they are, though they work, which like literally no one thinks about them as working individuals, except perhaps their colleagues who are like, why they pretend. Um, and it just seemed like, while really beautiful and like I think genuinely happy affair for the the newlyweds, I was just like, okay, this is just like a, this is just like what you do to to capture some attention. Yeah, and I think that you and I having the reaction that we did while also being like, wow, like to hear ten it. facts about it with Tiara, uh, and I really love the flowers. That's a very different reaction than we had to even Eugenie's wedding yes. or, and certainly Harry and Meghan's wedding, which I really, I was going through my DVR, still got a lot of Harry and Meghan spe- Royal special DVR content, not ready to give that up. Uh, just, you never know when I'll need to rewatch it. Um, and I was looking back through history and Kate and Will's wedding, which seems like a lifetime ago, but that'll be, that was 10, that was 2011. So that'll be 10 years next year, which really made me feel old, but that certainly played a different role in the pop culture. So you can kind of even see like the scaled back nature of the wedding, the scaled back nature of the pictures that, that this event does reflect a shifting nature of, of the Royals and how people respond to them and even how they understand themselves while also being just straight out of the playbook. I agree. All right. Good job. They got, they captured our attention. Their work is they done. <laughs> um, let's check in on red table talk because Og, he's been talking, he's doing more interviews and he released a song called entanglements. Um, it's been interesting watching this continue to play out. I've been enjoying the dialogue around it. I highly recommend the higher learning episode where they covered this. They had a really good mm-hmm. conversation and yeah, Og, he's, he's still just doing more interviews. Yeah, I think that it's worth singling out the interview that he did with Craig Jenkins at Vulture um, in New York Magazine, which is post Red Table Talk. And so they talk not only about the table, the Red Table Talk, though, in in the interview, uh, Og says that he has not watched it, but he has friends who have watched parts of it. But they they talk about the reaction and they talk about the press storm. They talk about how he has been portrayed and and they talk about his view of the relationship, which we talked a little bit last week about, you know, one of the things I had, I think a lot of people paused at was kind of some of the power dynamics and that there was not a lot of information given um, from Jada Pinkett Smith about how all this went down. And, and then also that she, you know, chose the word entanglement and kind of had to be pushed to use the word relationship. And so you start asking some questions. And and in this piece, he says that he agrees with the word entanglement, that that's what it was. And, you know, he also speaks a little bit to the idea of that power dynamic. And this isn't a part of a, a longer answer. And I think it's worth reading his words and his thoughts on the subject, because, you know, that is the that's the final word, but I'll, I'll just read this. There's nothing to regret because it's not something I went searching for. It's not something I went after. I don't go after people's girls. Nobody preyed on me or was a predator towards me. This is none of that. It just is. It just was. So he's certainly like 
heard some of the dialogue and is processing it. And I think it's interesting. It does seem to be a continuing conversation after this long interview. He then uh, released a song called Entanglements, which is a slightly different perspective on the entanglements and the recent events and um, is perhaps playing a little bit more into the, the, the public circus element of all of this, which I suppose, which is his right. I mean, he is one of the characters involved. That's what Will and Jada would do, you know? Yeah. They're, the, they're, it is what they did. Yeah, exactly. Their form was Red Table Talk and his is making music. Yeah. Um, performers got to perform. I think that the, like, it, 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 like, just saying, like, a relationship is or was, I think is like a really mature thing to do. Because so often, because of television shows that rely on pregnancy reveals and, and weddings, um, there has to be like really conscribed description of a relationship and like how it factors into like the road of relationships that lead up to marriage or divorce or whatever. But that's just some relationships just don't fit in that way. And I, and I think it's like hard to acknowledge that hard to say it. And I don't even, I don't even, that's certainly not the takeaway of what August has been saying since Red Table Talk. But I I do just think that's a really mature thing to say. Yeah. I do also think that relationships change while you're in them. And then also your understanding of them and what you learn from them and how you feel about someone else in your life also changes after time. And that changes after the relationship is over. So it's interesting to kind of hear people processing it in, in real time. Um, and you know, sometimes maybe feels slightly invasive, which, uh, because it, we have a lot of information, but this is information that, that people are actually sharing up to us. So, you know, I, like, I'm always trying to toe the line of, of, of should I know this? And is this, is this being responsible? Is this re- responsible celebrity consumption? And definitely part of the appeal is that it's a lot of people being very candid and a lot of people sharing things with you that normally people don't share. You don't really get an update on the inner workings of any relationship, but especially of, of three very famous people. So it's definitely fascinating. I, I still click on every link and I think a lot of people are. It has really in a lot of ways sure. been like the gossip story of the summer and, and it continues. Yeah, it sure does. Um, let's just talk about some other things we're watching and, and reading and consuming. Uh, I'd like to begin with my latest passion, which is mm-hmm. the newest album from the Chicks, formerly known as the Dixie Chicks, Gaslighter, which had a couple of good tunes come off it before the album. The album got pushed back. It was supposed to come out, I think, in, in April or May, but then COVID got pushed back. I'm so happy they released it here in July. Uh, it is so absolutely excellent, and it is an astonishing breakup album. A lot of the lyrics are pretty clearly references to Natalie Maines' divorce from Adrian Pastar, who I know as the like senator or mayor or whatever his job was in Heroes back in like the year two thousand five. <laughs> it's an incredible Juliet deep cut. What's he known for primarily? Uh, nothing in my house. <laughs> <laughs> well. I think he tried to stop the chicks from releasing this album, okay. knowing knowing that Natalie Maines is like just in, incredibly talented. Uh, the whole band is incredibly talented. This record has like the sickest burns ever. I I like don't have a breakup that I'm going through, but like I almost wish I did to like find <laughs> solace from this album. It is so 
fucking fire. Like I, it is just absolutely marvelous. I don't, I don't know what to say. I, I was like excited to have the Heim album. I just, I, I like some good female driven, catchy music. And this is just like, absolutely blows me away. I love it. I absolutely love it. I, you have been sharing your enthusiasm with me, I guess for what is it? Three or four days now. Yeah. And it's great. It's just, it's lovely when you have things you like. I, you know, I have a, I grew up um, in, a, in Atlanta, Georgia and had a real connection to the Chicks early albums when I was so good, when I was very young. And I like actually went, I have vivid memories of going to their concerts. Um, they're, which, they're honestly just like inspirational. Sorry, I cut you off. No, no, no. I think that's, I, they, they are. Right. I mean, I think they're great musicians. I um, admire the way in which they are trying to engage with the moment and with their, the history of their band. And, you know, they've obviously been part of a political firestorm in the past, in the, in the early two thousands and are conscious of how they are perceived as well as their music and are, and are trying to do that responsibly in comparison with some other uh, country bands who shall not be named on this podcast because their name is still in question. And that seems like a real mess. So I I really admire them and like their music. I have, I have just not yet gotten a chance to, to check this one out, but also a breakup album seems great in a lot of ways. I am, I am not going through a breakup right now either, but it seems like a great outlet for channeling a lot of pettiness and anger and frustration that I think all of us feel in a lot of different ways, whether you're, you know, from literally anything in the world at this point and channeling it towards a, a it's a, it's a healthy outlet. How about that? Yeah. I was actually going to say the, the fuel that this album runs on is rage. And while I'm not raging against a boyfriend or a husband, I certainly feel rage at the state of the world. Sometimes I think we all feel rage sometimes. Also, it's just, it really like the palpable rage on the album is so exciting. I don't know. I just, I absolutely love it. And I also think it's really cool. Um, this is their first album in 14 years. And there's a good um, profile of the band that also includes some quotes from Jack Antonoff, who they worked with on this album. And I have to say, it is like the least Jack Antonoff, Jack, Jack Antonoff album I've heard. I'm curious for your feedback, Amanda. Um, but they really like um, like working with each other. And, you know, t- two of the chicks are sisters. And then there's Natalie Maines. And they all did like some other projects that weren't as successful. And, and it's funny, like hearing them acknowledge that they're not as successful um, separately, which I think happens to a lot of bands. And then I think many of them kind of like begrudgingly come back together, but they seem like truly excited and joyful to be working together again. And it's like, it's a real testament to like professional women working together. And, and I appreciate that as well. I, I don't know. It's just, it's such a good album. Please check it out. Tracks two and three are just on repeat in my, in my head and in my home. I'm on it. I'm looking forward to it. I wanted to share with you a book that I started reading. Another another flash uh, borrowing spree on the library app, mm. which is just, I want to be clear, not sponsoring me. Uh, it's That's a passion project all its own. And what I do late at night is just look at what's available on the Libby app. And and they, they do a thing where if you, I, I explain this for the Jessica Simpson app, but um, episode, but if you have... For in-demand books, they'll give them to you for seven days. And 
So I recently found a, a seven-day copy of Rodham by Curtis Sittenfeld on Libby, and I'm reading it. And I am about a quarter of the way in that I would say. And so if you're not familiar, Rodham is a historical fiction about Hillary Rodham Clinton. And the premise, which I have not gotten to yet in the book, is uh, what would have happened to Hillary's life if she did not marry Bill Clinton and thus if she stayed Rodham. But so it's a really close imagined um, first person account of Hillary Rodham Clinton's life. And uh, and uh, quite an experiment. And I have no idea, frankly, whether it's going to work because I'm only a quarter of the book in, but it's fascinating. And I've what's so interesting about it to me as someone who consumes a lot of celebrity gossip and who is constantly talking about, you know, knowing your sources and checking your sources and putting things in context and, and, and making sure that you're not believing things that aren't true is that I am reading what I know to be a work of fiction, but it's in the first person and it has the names of people that I know very well and I'm familiar with major parts of their personal life. And so half the time I'm reading this as fact. And then I have to remind myself like, no, this is actually completely imagined. This is a this is a novel by a novelist. But I find myself sitting there and I'm just like reading this imagined dialogue and then I want to go and Google whether this is true or not or did this happen. And I find that impulse really interesting just in terms of how I'm processing information. And it's like, it's like a biopic, but not a biopic because it's a completely alternative history, but it's just a reminder to me that, you know, what you read and this, like a a story well told just has like a profound impact on our brain that is like perhaps contradicts like reality, not even perhaps, like absolutely contradicts reality. Again, this is a work of fiction, but I just, it, it's amazing, like the mental gymnastics that I am doing, trying to be like a responsible uh, reader. And 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 for that, it's really interesting as, as a work of, of art. Did she participate, she being Hillary Clinton, did she in any way participate in this book? I don't believe so. Curtis Sittenfeld's kind of like in the mix with like the sort of liberal intellectual class. So I I bet they've crossed paths if I had to guess. Yeah. And you know, this is also Curtis Sittenfeld wrote a novel called American wife that was reimagined in many ways, the life of Laura Bush. So this is sort of an emerging genre for her. And I, you know, I did not read American wife um, because even there, that is, that's a choice that reflects, I guess, to some extent, my, both, you know, political biases, but also kind of the fact that I'm taking it as, as not, not as fact, but choosing to read one and not the other, because I have an interest in a certain type of thing, even though they're both made up, it's both, it's fictional. It's fictional. Um, it's just very interesting. I'm curious to see once I actually get to the hypothetical, how it, how it pans out and whether it transitions from, you know, this kind of mind bending exercise into like a more, whether I'll be able to uh, separate right. reality from this fiction a bit more and whether kind of the hypothetical experiment will actually pay off. Um, I don't know yet, but it's interesting. Okay. Report back. I will. I will. Um, also on my reading list is the GQ profile of a couple from last week. I guess it's in the August issue of um, Quavo and Saweetie. And it was just such a like lovely 
portrait of a relationship that also made me nervous. I thought of you when I was reading it, Amanda, because they're both they're both quarantining in L.A. and they live near each other. But apparently neither has a pool. So they did a staycation in L.A. at a house with a pool. I just felt like that's the kind of thing you would do. Love it. Yeah. I Aspirational. It's not really, you know, on my, in my day-to-day budget, but I'm thrilled for them. And maybe we can all get there. It would be really nice to have a pool right now. I'm just saying. It felt like a real window into like a, a Gen Z relationship because they basically like they met at a party or something like that. And then they like DM'd each other on Instagram, mm-hmm. um, just like just like regular people. And then like flirted for a while. And then ultimately um, they went on a date, including going to Magic City in Atlanta. And there was like a shooting at the end of it. And then they like but they ended, it, it all worked out. But it was like a very it was like a real like movie type of story of like a very eventful first date. And you're like, oh, my God. And he in Quavo even says, and I forgot it was like our first date. And it was just very um, sweet. They like the way they talk about each other was so open and tender that it made me nervous. I was just like, I'm worried that you guys are sharing too much. While I'm so happy to know about this. Right. Perhaps perhaps I shouldn't. And it made right. me very nervous. Right. Again, what I was talking about, like, I'm fascinated by this. And this is a happy example. They are, seem two people who really like each other. I, th- the photos are really lovely also in this this spread. It's them together. And um, they, they're beautiful. Yeah. It's ju- it's them in a happy moment. And the impulse is both to be very excited that you get to witness it and also to to want to protect it because we've seen what can happen when these things are in the public eye. And maybe we're wrong. I like, I hope that we're wrong. It's not, it's not that there's necessarily, there's anything inherently wrong with being public. It's just, you want to protect a nice thing. Totally. I was just like, thank you so much for sharing. Now don't tell me anything about you ever again. Cause I, yeah, you know, I, we've seen it happen with so many celebrity couples. As soon as you let your relationship be in the pages of a fancy magazine, it's hard to keep the the future magazines out. So one thing that will help is coronavirus, luckily. Um, but it was like a, it was really nice. It also felt like it was one of these profiles where the the bulk of it was conducted in person before all the shutdowns began, and then the rest was like they're checking in over the phone in April or whatever. And so it also felt like a little bit of a time capsule back to like when when press interviews were being conducted over lunch at the Chateau Marmont, although they were at the Sunset Marquee, actually. I was going to say that the Sunset Marquee of it all really stood out to me as a consumer of celebrity profiles set in LA that are inevitably start at a hotel restaurant. And I, I say that with real love because one of the reasons I moved to Los Angeles was to like one day be able to like sit at a table at one of these extremely overpriced hotel restaurants or patios because they're quite lovely. Yeah, they're extremely lovely. They're exorbitantly priced. And again, it's not in my day to day budget, but, you know, the landscaping's great. There is always a celebrity around the corner. You kind of can't believe that it's the way it is in magazines, but actually it kind of is. The food's not that good but you can rely on the French fries to be good, you know? And mm-hmm. I think they're yeah. having French fries. Anyway, it was a really, it was just a lovely profile. Check it out. And beautiful, beautiful photos. One thing that we also texted about this weekend is my um, daily mail story related to the former Sussexes, Harry and Megan. Yeah. So I think it's a, it was a daily mail write-up of the sun story because my uh, relationship with the daily mail uh, continues against my better, uh, 
my best interests and my, my knowledge of myself and what's responsible. But, um, you know, I, in general, I think all we continue to just not really talk about the coverage of Harry and Meghan because it's been, um, pretty unfair. And it seems like they are just trying to live privately in Los Angeles while they figure out the rest of their life. And they have every right to do that. This one. So with that in mind, I sent you this one because it was just like about how, um, Harry and one of Megan's dogs don't get along. And it was the most ridiculous thing that I've ever read in my entire life, but it did include the source to the sun. Here's the quote. Megan adored that dog, but the decision not to take him back was based on Bogart. That's the dog's relationship with Harry. And I just, I don't, we're like through the looking glass and it's so ridiculous, but I was also pretty amused by it. You know, I hope that Harry and Bogart and Megan are all healthy and happy. I don't wish like loneliness on the part of any individuals, including the dog. But otherwise I was just like, this is (laughs) what are we talking about? That there is legit a tabloid article about how a dog doesn't like Harry or that Harry and the dog had a falling out. Like this is actually a parody of, of everything, both tabloid culture and um, how people relate to their dogs. So I was amused by it against my better judgment. I think probably I don't believe anything about the relationship between Harry and various canines in his life. I, I know every time I see a Harry and Meghan headline, I just, I'm like, this can't be true. Or I'm like, there's like maybe a, a morsel of truth in here, but I'm like, this is definitely not true. It's like so outrageous. And it's almost like brazen that all of the press is still doing what they're doing, given this whole situation. It, it's kind of crazy. It makes me sad. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it goes back to the idea that I think these, these things still sell newspapers and headlines and, you know, and I clicked on it. So I'm part of it. And I'm here being like, lol, Bogart, the dog doesn't like Harry. So I think that's part of the reason that it's happening. And especially right now in COVID that these are still a distraction and frivolous stories and from in the midst of just really tough stuff. So I understand why it's happening and even how we're a part of it. The, the way it's done is just for the most part, so gross. And also just kind of like, who needs this at this point? Like the, who needs a story about Bogart, the dog? I mean, I guess I did because I, (laughs) I was like amused by it, but I, it's just kind of, are we really putting this much time and resources to these issues. I guess we are because we have a podcast about it. I so that that's where I am. It's that I'm a like I I am a consumer of this information while knowing it's absolutely absurd. It's trash. It's straight trash. Yeah. Be careful on the gossip streets, you know? As we yeah. always say, know who to trust. Exactly. On that note, we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>